we begin a, a conversation, an exploration into the book of Matthew today in our continuing series of As You Go. In fact, I saw many of you raise your hand and you have your actual uh, New Testament slash Matthew slash journal with you. So keep it handy. We'll be in it in just a few minutes. And I hope to provide you with some nuggets that you can jot down on the journal side. Do me a favor and let's pray just for a moment. Father God, thank you for your presence in this very space right now. Thank you for your presence in the lives of everyone in this room. Father, for your presence in the lives of those who are even hearing me say these words, whether they be online or hearing this later. Father, as we begin to dive into the Gospel of Matthew, may we see your Son, Jesus. And it's in his name. His name. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. You and I, everybody in this room, are storied creatures. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but literally our experiences as humans are filled with memorable characters. Even as I just pause and look around this room, some of you I've known for a lot longer. Some of you I've known for the 15-year stint that we've been here. But as I wade my eyes across this room, I chuckle. I can giggle. We've been through some fun things together. We've been through some hard things together. But, but our storied experiences together are filled with memories. They're filled with stories. They're filled with um, loved ones. People that frustrate us, our stories have plots and twists and turns. And uh, the bulk of our stories, I might say, are actually originate in our families, if you want to think about it that way. In fact, the family, if you would, is the primary, except for in some circumstances, the most powerful system that you and I will ever belong. One of the most meaningful ministries that I get to participate in here at Hendersonville, is this ministry of premarital counseling. You'll hear it often. We talk about it from time to time. It's marriage education. And those of us who participate in premarital counseling will spend anywhere from maybe 10 to 12 hours with a couple over the course of time. And we'll talk about things like their strengths and their growth areas, the things that they need to work on, the things that they're really good at. We'll talk about communication skills or the lack thereof, which pretty much sums up all of us, Okay. Uh, We could all do a little bit better with that. We talk about the stressors that are in their lives right now. We talk about what it looks like to maybe manage those a little bit better. We even talk about how to and maybe become better at resolving conflict, how to do that well. Um, And then that's just to name a few, right? You think, why do we do all that? Well, it's because we want to create curiosity, cultivate curiosity in their relationship with each other. And we want to help stimulate dialogue about important or essential relationship topics, And I want to, or at least those of us who are participating in this, we want to help increase awareness in that person and in that couple about each other. And so one of the most important things that I get to do at the beginning of uh, any kind of premarital counseling session is explore a person's family of origin. So I want you to know right off the bat, your family of origin matters. Regardless of what your experiences have been like, your family of origin matters. In fact, everything that we do, right, comes back down to this in many ways. And what this does is it helps us establish a practical framework 
for understanding how each person's family operates, which, by the way, tells us a little bit about how you and I operate. One of the tools that I use in premarital counseling is something called a genogram. I'm going to throw one up there just for you to see uh, just right off the bat. And uh, genograms are pretty neat. Um, They zero in on at least three generations of your family, and they include things like age and gender and a lot of other factors when it comes down to who you are. And then you'll find a legend that's full of symbols that help explain all the things as we're working through a genogram. Because what you begin to find out is that families are tied together biologically, culturally, uh, legally, and uh, emotionally. And there's a history that comes with all of these things. And uh, by the way, uh, we're all interconnected in some way, shape, or form. And our family relationships tend to be reciprocal. Patterns get passed down. And you'll notice that families repeat things. And so a genogram serves as this tool or this really neat um, resource to help observe a family system. And I can create one in any moment, in any person's time. And uh, they go beyond a family tree. And so you may be still looking at this thing going, what on earth is that? But when we look at one really closely, it helps us visualize stories. And it helps us visualize narratives. Relationships. Births. Divorce. Events. Problems, transitions, life cycle changes, and the list just goes on and on and on. So if you look at this one right now, you'll notice that there's a red box around one square and it, uh, uh, under a, oh, well, over a 47-year-old. So this genogram is about him. All right, so squares right off the bat are males and circles are females. That's part of the legend. If you see some of these X's, it means that those people are deceased. All right, so you'll notice that uh, the 47-year-old has two sisters. And you see that their father's passed away. Man, I'm not even to the next slide yet. You'll notice that his wife died in a tragic car accident. They had a daughter. She was 16 when this happened. You'll notice that he had a brother that died very tragically at 12. And you'll notice that he was remarried a year after the death of his first wife. So you can imagine, if I put some more lines up here, there's some complexities, right? Uh, There's some things up here that we could go into really in depth with. Um, But when you see it like this, it's kind of incomplete. It may not mean much to you. In fact, without names... It may not even be meaningful to you at all, but if you put some names up here, um, you find out that it's a little more personal, right? This is part of my genogram. So these are my family names. And so you can see real quickly that as you begin to look at these things, you begin to learn a lot about people, and you learn a lot about their experiences. And all of these things are not just names, they're stories, they're narratives about who create who we are. Right? Does it make sense? Are you tracking with me? Some of you have probably participated in one of these before, but maybe you may be asking, why on earth are you even talking about this stuff? Why does any of it matter? Well, it's because genograms tell us a lot about who we are. And so, for this reason, because everybody in this room, everybody who can hear me, you and I, we all seek to define ourselves. Right? 
And you and I end up asking one of the most fundamental questions of our entire human existence, which is this, who am I? Who am I in the grand scheme of all these things? And we seek to define ourselves in a lot of different ways, right? Geography, religion, occupation, gender, mother, father, son, daughter. The very fact that I am a 47-year-old white male who is married who has four kids and four grandchildren, who happens to be a Protestant minister serving in the churches of Christ, does not tell you everything, right? Now, you can learn a lot from that if you started breaking that down, but it does not tell you everything about who John Micah is. You need to know a lot more than just those identifiers. And so you think about this. None of these labels tell you everything. They're all a little bit incomplete, but if we're not careful as we begin to label ourselves, we, we can construct this false identity of who we are and where we receive meaning and value and all these things. And so exploring our family of origin helps us understand our identities. So think about this. You may think, why on earth, why haven't you gotten to the book of Matthew yet? Thanks for asking, Megan, because we're going there now. Matthew's original audience was probably asking, who are we? Who are we? So if you've got to take a few minutes, even as you go throughout Matthew, this entire time we're studying this, and imagine their context. Imagine their cultural, social, political, and religious environment, just to get a little bit of idea between 80 and 90 AD, to think about why would this church, why would these new Christians, who don't even know they're Christians yet, really, why would they be asking who they are? Well, the Roman Empire is the dominant force. They live under Roman occupation. Rome is in charge. There is power and there is violence and there is oppression. And Rome does not care about the marginalized. The Jewish people had witnessed the fall of Jerusalem. If you are a Jewish person, you have also witnessed the destruction of the temple where everything happened. Galilee is crowded. The land is in crisis. Conflict between Romans and Jews is escalating and it was ongoing, and not to mention the Jewish people were at odds with each other, right? There's divisions there. You've got Sadducees, you've got Herodians, you've got Essenes, you've got Zealots, you've got scribes, you've got priests, you've got followers of John the Baptist, Whew. and you've got the Pharisees, who are kind of the last ones standing, just trying to hold all their traditions and values together, and they're trying to do the right thing. And then you have this little group of Jesus followers, this new movement of people that to everybody else, it just looks like one more division. And they are all living in this intersection of cultures, variety of influential religious trends, and most of it, if not all of it, threatened every bit of their traditions and their values. And they're experiencing trouble from within and trouble from without, and tension is growing. The Gospel of Matthew is shaped by the challenges of the church then in her own time. There is conflict. Listen to these really carefully. There's conflict. There's division. There's isolation. There's polarization. There's outsiders. There's insiders. Then there are political and religious leaders who are co-opted, mistrusted, and discredited. And the cultures just continued to clash. Is it starting to sound familiar? That's their culture. The Gospel of Matthew is shaped by their challenges. It's amazing. Matthew is written in the face of growing crisis, and what Matthew is going to do in this Gospel is attempt to provide them with what they need most, and that is a really big word, identity. 
They need to know who they are. And so Matthew's going to write to help them figure out who they are. But more importantly than that, he's going to help them figure out who Jesus is. And that is probably the most important thing that we're going to see unfold in Matthew. Matthew is going to help us see who Jesus really is. So if you're a note taker, here's a truth for you to be as we begin. All of this matters for this reason. And why go through all the length of this? Because of this. Um, Jesus redefines the identities of those who follow him. Something we've really got to consider. If Matthew's going through all this work to describe who Jesus is, there's a reason why. Because Jesus redefines the identities of those who follow him. Here's what I'll say about that. In our context, in their context, you and I must understand and embrace who Jesus is because his identity actually really matters in this conversation. Because if you and I get Jesus wrong, if we misunderstand who Jesus is, then it's going to affect our entire lived experiences as disciples of Jesus. And it's going to affect everybody else around us if we, in fact, misunderstand who Jesus is. So Matthew wants to know without a shadow of a doubt who he is. You'll see a word doubt up there. I could go into length about doubt, right? If I really just asked for a show of hands this morning and for us all just to be really transparent and vulnerable and say, where are you really with this word when it comes to Jesus and when it comes to our faith, especially in this tense world that we live in? And I said, how many of you or what's it look like or how often do you experience doubt? We could have that conversation. Young and old, I'm sure that doubt is a part of our conversation. So Matthew wants us to know who Jesus is. So you're faced with this question, who is he? Who is Jesus? And so Matthew begins with this lineage. And our first temptation, go ahead, if you don't have this thing picked up yet, I will tell you, your first temptation anytime you come to a list like this is to go, nope. I can't even pronounce half the words in that chapter. I don't know what their names are. I'm just going to bypass it all together. I'll come back to it. Um, I'm not even sure why they put that there. Right? Or we just go, no big deal, we'll rush through it real quick and we'll fly through some names and misunderstand it. It's not a big deal. That's, your first, that's our first, not just yours, it's our temptation. There's lots of these in the Bible and sometimes we go, mm-mm, I don't even know if that, I'm not, I'm not going to attempt this. Right? You know, it's somebody's worst fear when you ask them to do scripture reading in the morning. You go, hey, give them Matthew chapter 1 just for fun. Let's watch them squirm. Right? Um, I've probably read it no less than 20 times this morning just to make sure I pronounce them right. And guess what? I'm still probably going to pronounce it wrong. Okay? So you've got this book in front of you, but there is so much more than just a list of names in Matthew. So slow down and listen to the significance. This is Matthew chapter 1. Go ahead and open it if you're not there already. This is Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 17. Yes, we're going to read it. Because it's really important. That's what I want you to understand, all right? Students, I know. I know. Well, I, I should have just numbered you off and said, you, you pronounce this when you pronounce this when you pronounce this, and we'll just have a lot of fun with this. Max, you would have loved it. I know. Here we go. Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 17. The book of the genie... Hmm. Uh-huh. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David... The son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, 
And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, or Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asphah. And Asphah the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheathiel. And Sheathiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel the father of Abu... Abu uh, see, there it is. Abayud, and Abayud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The first thing you might find of great interest is that the Greek word for genealogy in this little book is Genesis. The origin. This is the genesis of Jesus. This is the origin of Jesus. Something new is happening. This is why I asked Leslie to read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Something big is happening with Jesus' arrival into the world. Something new is happening. Something new is beginning. New life, new identity, new orientation. I don't think the word is an accident. In other words, this is great. The story of new creation is the very first movement in the gospel presented by Matthew. And Jesus Christ is the one who's going to bring all these promises and purposes to fruition. And so you have this genealogy of Jesus, this list that we typically fly through. And the very names invoke stories of Israel's experiences, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of the above. And if you look at this list, I'm gonna, I don't mean to fly through this, but I think I'm going to have to to a degree. You're going to see family messages and stories in the genealogy. You're going to see narratives and events and relationships. You're going to see marriages, problems, and life transitions. You're going to see birth and loss and dysfunction and memories, expectations, achievements, mistakes, and yes, even secrets in the genealogy of Jesus Christ that we all now know. God has been bringing his people to the point of Jesus' first arrival, reminding us that God is involved and intervenes in all human experiences. The genealogy of Jesus is kind of a big deal. Nothing is hidden. God is the one who takes initiative. 
He calls Abraham and selects David, but both men failed miserably, which we'll talk about here in a second. They both had a sketchy past, students. I tried to figure out a way to say this that would include you. I'm not trying to throw shade on David or Abraham, right? That's that's the word Blake's trying to teach me. uh, But there's some shady people in Jesus' family history, and these two guys are part of it. But God remains faithful. So here's a second truth for you. God is present and works in irregular ways through a variety of different people. There is no end to God's creativeness when it comes to how he works through human beings. In fact, we come across names that we don't expect. We come across names that aren't even there because some have been omitted. And then we've got four in particular that jump off the page a little bit. And there's a lot of discussion as to why. So don't be confused as to why they're actually there. But then, for women to appear in a genealogy was a little strange. And it caught people off guard. You may read that and go, why are they there? Well, check this out. Tamar is a Canaanite. Don't get hung up on her behavior. All right? She may, in fact, may have tricked uh, her dad into thinking she was a prostitute, but her dad was going to see a prostitute. Okay? So, Tamar is a Canaanite. Rahab is from Jericho. Ruth is a Moabite. And now you have Bathsheba, who's not named. She's called the wife of Uriah, and she's a Hittite. Here's why I love this one. Because mm, because of David's behavior. Because of David's mistreatment of Bathsheba as he violated that entire circumstance, he robbed Uriah of having a genealogy. He has no children, he has no list of names, but I love this because Uriah's name shows up in the most amazing, popular, astounding genealogy of all earth. Uriah's name will never be forgotten because of what he, based off what he, of what David did, okay? But we see that she, he, she is in this and he is in this. She's a Hittite. Each one of them is of non-Jewish descent, which is a big deal because it means that outsiders are included in the promises of God. This is the first time they're seeing this. It's all coming to fruition. God works through the righteous and the unrighteous. Some seem significant or some seem insignificant. Others are disobedient, unfaithful, liars, cheating their blind fathers, committing adultery and murder. By the way, one of the guys in there, probably a mass murderer. We've got to pause and take a look at them. Female, male, Jews, and Gentiles, all alike, they are included. So the third thing, the third truth would be this. The brokenness and sinfulness of the world is not the final reality. You may look at your family history and your genealogy and go, what a mess. Yes. I would challenge you to go look at any family tree in the Bible and find where one's not a mess. Filled with messes. It's who we are. It's because of the brokenness of the world. But what I'm telling you is, guess what? It's not the final word. You don't have to carry that stuff on. I don't have to carry that stuff on. Now, is it challenging to break out of those cycles? It sure is. But God is the final reality. That is something we need to think about. You didn't know there was so much to learn about the genealogy of Jesus, right? There's so much more here than just a bunch of names. It's blown me away the more I have dug into this. And so all of these names reflect the people or a people, and their experiences with the one true God, get this language, who has always been with them. And thanks to this list, Matthew is helping his audience then and helping his audience now getting to know Jesus. But you're going to love this. He's only getting warmed up. 
We're just in chapter 1. This is just the first 17 verses, so now we're going to switch over a little bit over to this birth narrative. So here in a second, we're going to check out Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25. So go ahead and have your finger there. Matthew continues to tell us who Jesus is. And I will say this, it seems like every word that's written in this is carefully chosen and intentionally picked out in depth. And so what we're going to have now is we're going to, you're like, why did we do all that genogram at the very beginning? Matthew zeroes in on Jesus's immediate family, not just these generations after generations. And you might already think this way, but his birth isn't normal by any human standards, okay? And you and I, from a distance, are witnessing a family secret in the making. And for anybody involved, this would have been a hard circumstance to walk through. Whether you were Mary or Joseph or the family, everybody involved, this would have been challenging. And so at first glance, it looks like something has gone terribly wrong. This is chapter 1, 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, thee, or a virgin, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, and he took, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So you have this little genogram here. It's not complete. We don't know a lot about a lot of the names here, even though we do know a lot of names. But verse 19 in this little chapter takes us into Joseph's thoughts, which is pretty interesting if you've never thought about it that way. And we see this account from Joseph's perspective, which is different than other accounts. We see as Joseph faces a really difficult decision. And in him, we hear him narrate his response in his head. And I will say this, here in this text, here's what I love about this. You and I learn all we need to know about Jesus's earthly father, his character, who he is, We see in this few sentences, he's not aware of the Holy Spirit's role. And all he can do is assume that the person that he's engaged to marry is now pregnant with likely another man. And so if you saw it on paper, this is what it looks like. You see that he's going to break this thing off. They're engaged, but he's going to break this thing off quietly because he's a just man. He's a righteous man, and he does not want to publicly humiliate Mary. We learn everything we need to know about Joseph's character in this piece. He makes the decision before the angel even appears to him and describes to him what is happening. Then an angel 
visits him in a dream and explains everything. And he begins to explain who Jesus is. And I would say that probably here in chapter 1 and verse 23, after Joseph wakes up, one of the most significant things about him waking up is that he says, okay. Very similar to Mary saying, let's go. We'll do this. Joseph gets up and he obeys God's call. He names Jesus and he becomes the next one in his family lineage to accept the call to follow God. Who is Jesus? Well, even his name is pretty significant. Similar to Joshua, it would have been a very popular name back then, but even his name reminds them that God has always used people to deliver them from their circumstances. So verse 23, if you're looking at your Bible right now, says this, And they shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. So the reality is this. When Jesus is born, Matthew literally gets to say, God is with us. God is present with us in this brokenness, in this mess that you find yourselves in in culture, in the Roman occupation, in all the division. God is with you in this mess, but he's with you in a new, present, unique, and special way in Jesus. So you and I have got to understand Jesus from this point of view. He is God with us, and there's nothing in the text that tells us that that stops. He is God with us. Jesus will manifest God's presence, and he is fulfilling things along the way. And so what does Jesus, or does Matthew help us do? He literally helps us see who Jesus is. He's also pastoral in the way he writes. I mentioned this earlier, disciples often struggle with doubt and faith. And so as we read through Matthew, we're going to find that it's written to encourage us in our circumstances. Matthew is somebody who calls us into full participation He's going to write to effect definitive change in the way that you and I live and think. And then he's going to find this out. The disciples are invited to orient their lives around Jesus. Nothing is more important than who we believe Jesus is and how we model him. That is why all of this matters. And we come to this fourth truth, which is this. Our understanding of who Jesus is determines the kind of disciples that you and I become. Again, if we get Jesus wrong, if we misunderstand Jesus, our life as disciples is going to be off. It's not going to be in sync or oriented around who Jesus is. Therefore, our discipleship is going to be a little off, if not completely off. And we have to ask some questions. Are we going to be a people who construct a Jesus out of our own image? Or will we embrace the Jesus revealed in the Gospels? So as we read through Matthew together over these next 28 weeks, may we invite the Holy Spirit to examine our religious lives and practices in light of who Jesus is, not in light of who we want him to be or think that he is or wish that he was. Because Matthew writes so that we would know who Jesus is. You could even look at it this way. I don't know if you like this language or not, but you could also view some of what Matthew is as a training manual for discipleship. Because he wants us to see and live in the world, in our culture, in our religious, political, and social context under the lordship of Jesus. And so as we read Matthew, may we read Matthew with the reality of who Jesus is. Our identity as disciples and participation in discipleship 
begins and ends with the reality of who Jesus is. I'll explain that statement just briefly as we close. Your identity, my identity as a disciple, and our participation, which is key in this, is not an inactive participation, it's active. In discipleship begins with Jesus and ends with Jesus, and it's based on the reality of who Jesus is. All these things that we've talked about. Open back up to Matthew, if you don't mind. This is pretty fascinating. We'll get to this as we close out. But what's neat is Matthew bookends his entire gospel with these, with the same truth. Turn over to Matthew chapter 28, starting with verse 16. I'm going to highlight verse 20, but verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. It's been there from the beginning. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And verse 20, at the end of it, verse 20 says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He says the same thing at the beginning, and he says the same thing at the end to reiterate to us that you and I are not alone in our messes. You are not alone in your brokenness. You are not alone in all of these things that we are faced with. I am not alone. We are not alone. By the way, we're all together in this, which makes these things a little bit easier to stomach when we are going through challenges. But this is a story of a God, the God, who does not abandon us no matter how bad that we think that our circumstances are. So we've really got one question at the end of this whole thing, and that is, will we follow him? At the end of the day, that's the question. And so we have this time for invitation, right? And so there literally may be someone who's hearing this who practically is thinking, I think that I want to consider surrendering my life to Jesus for maybe for the very first time, and I want to begin a life of discipleship with him. And you can do that. We can do that. We can begin in baptism with you this morning. Um, If that's not where you are, maybe you have been a disciple or you have been a Christian for a lot of years, and your participation, like so many of us, has been in and out, not... Not this, not just this hour that we participate in on Sunday morning, but our lives as disciples. disciples. So maybe it's an ongoing invitation this week, today, to see everyone and to see all experiences in the world, our relationships, this city and others through the reality of who Jesus is and who we are because of him. I almost asked you, Blake, to get back up here and sing a song that you guys did at the very beginning because we sang about it at the very beginning. There is salvation in his name. His name matters. Jesus is madly in love with you. He has a long and loving gaze upon you. Your identity matters, and your identity in him matters even more. If you want to confess Jesus for the first time, you just need prayers for your ongoing journey. Please stand with us as we come and sing.